Great to finally see you. I've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. I want to start with a random funny story that has nothing to do with anything. One of my favorite preachers, um, he was in a city that was really hostile to Christianity. So he was regularly facing attempts to discredit and slime him with any accusation or fault or scandal. And so a gentleman who had been public, you know, publishing articles against him said, I want to meet Let's make up, let's be friends, let's get together, let's bury the hatchet. So he's like, okay, fine, this guy's been a jerk to me, but this is the way the gospel works. We're going to forgive, I'm going to make peace. So he meets with the guy, and instead of being nice, the guy just, just provokes him and accuses and is just so rude, and he says, he, he senses the Spirit say, he's actually recording this whole conversation. He's just trying to catch you in a soundbite. He goes, oh my word, he goes, dude, are you recording this right now? And he goes, yeah. And he's like, and then the spirit says, he wants you to punch him. The guy's whole goal in getting together was to get him to punch him, you know, so that he could tag the head. I was assaulted by this mega church pastor. And he's like, are you just trying to get me to hit you? And he goes, yeah. And he's like, because that's what I want to do, you know? And he's like, actually, no, that's not what I want. You know what I want? I want a milkshake and a nap. I think about that line weekly. When life's really hard, I think that. I do. I really think, I would like a milkshake and a nap. <laughs> did you know a milkshake at Sonic's like five bucks? And did you know I'm still going to get one? Okay, Colossians 3. Listen to the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. This is the word of the Lord. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient or the sons of disobedience, depending on your translation. Can you think of a time in human history more than now, when the idea of God's wrath has ever been more unpopular than right now. I cannot. I've noticed that just saying the phrase, the wrath of God, makes Christians and non-Christians uncomfortable. Christians, because they go, well, the God that I know is really loving and I don't want people to get the impression that we have an angry tyrant on a throne that we're worshiping. And non-Christians, often, because they disagree with God's moral assessment, and therefore, the basis of that wrath. 
right? So both the fact that he has wrath at all is offensive to a non-Christian, I would think, and his moral beliefs, God's moral beliefs. Did you know God has beliefs? You know those fact or opinion tests that you filled out in elementary school? Does God have opinions or? Shakespeare, was he a good author? Fact or opinion? I think that's an opinion, right? But what if God thinks he was a good author? Is it then a fact? The wrath of God. In this passage, this is a fascinating idea because it doesn't say the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. You got your Bibles open? You looking at it? It says the wrath of God is coming upon. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. It's fascinating, right? Like in Romans 2, we have an account of like future judgment. It says this, this is Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good who seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So there's a day coming, says Paul, that he calls the day of wrath. We call it judgment day, that it's appointed to all people once to die and then after that face the judgment. So there's a day coming in the future called the day of wrath, but that's not what Colossians 3 is talking about. Are you with me? Colossians 3 says the wrath of God is being revealed right now in the lives of people who have rejected God and who are living according to sinful values and desires. Fascinating. In Romans 1, we have the same concept where he says that humans rejected God, rejected the knowledge of God, and as a consequence, God says, handed them over. God gave them over to do what ought not be done. And then it says, people received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So there's a day coming when God's active wrath will be poured out on the day of judgment. But right now, the wrath of God is not an active force, but rather God saying to men and women who reject his will, have it your way. Notice in Romans, as we're kind of trying to come to an understanding of the gospel, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but he doesn't then say the wages of righteousness is life. He says the wages of sin is death, but the gift That's an interesting surprise, isn't it? You would expect him to say, there's a punishment over here for sin and there's a reward for obedience. But what he actually says is, this is the realm of gravity, cause and effect. And over here, God breaks the chain of cause and effect by busting in and saying, I'm not, I'm gonna make sure you don't get what you deserve and I'm gonna rescue you and you didn't earn it and it's all gift, it's all grace. And that is God's default setting, by the way. God's default setting is to actively restrain our sin 
and keep us from getting what we would have if he let go. God's, active, God's natural setting is to be actively involved in everyone's life, even if they don't know him, mercifully restraining and protecting and preserving them. That's his natural setting. His default setting is grace. But when we provoke and rebel against him long enough, he says, have it your way, may your will be done. And that is present wrath. The present wrath, the, the judgment of God against sin is to give us what we have chosen so that we experience for ourselves the consequences of our own values and beliefs and chosen course of action. The best thing you can ever pray to God is, well, one, I shouldn't say it like that. One of the healthiest hearts of prayer you can ever have is, not my will, but yours be done. And one of the most terrifying things you can ever hear from God if you're in rebellion against him is, may your will be done. So the, act, the, the wrath of God that this verse is talking about is God allowing people to experience the destructive power of their bad choices, of our bad choices. Who's with me so far? Interesting. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. In John chapter eight, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin, but if the son sets you free, you're really free for real. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. It's really fat. I mean, I said this a couple times ago, like when I was a kid, I thought righteousness sounds not fun and difficult. Sin, it's like, well, that's where all the fun is, right? And you still have absolutely ridiculous, like bumper stickers. I'm going to hell. That's where my friends are. It's where the party's going to be. You know what I mean? That's such craziness. It's like what it shows is a lack of basic understanding of moral reality. The more wicked you are, the more miserable you are. the less capable of receiving and being love you are. Because the essence of all morality comes back to love. Amen. Goodness is defined by love. Love is my absolute. People would ask me, Tim, do you believe in absolute truth? And I would say, I only believe in one absolute, and it's love. And his name is Jesus, by the way. Love is a person. Love is a person. So Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. I, I wonder if we understand this deep, deep connection between holiness and happiness. The psalmist understands it when he says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever thought about the idea that at the heart of biblical faith is an actual desire to be happy? John Wesley, one of my heroes from a couple hundred years back, he says, the great creator made no creature to be miserable, but made everything to be happy in its own kind. And if you are unhappy now, it is because you are in an unnatural condition. Wesley was the guy who taught that Christians can be sinless. And uh, I was like, I don't know about all that, bro, but I like where you're trying to get, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say we should aim for perfection. It's another thing to stand up in public and be like, I haven't sinned since 1978. <laughs> I heard a dude say that once in a church service. 
He's like, I haven't sinned since 19... He didn't do that with his pants, but he should have done that with his pants just to make me happy. I haven't sinned since 1970. He did. The guy meant it. He said, he said that he had encounter in prayer. You talking about John Wesley or the preacher? Okay, well, I like John Wesley. I'm still allowed to disagree with him, right? But the dude stood up and he's like, I haven't sinned since 1978 when I had an entire sanctification experience. I've never, I don't lust, I don't have pride, I don't have, and I'm like, you're boasting, dude. Like, I feel like you're sinning right now, right? Like, love is humble. Like, if you were, if you had a sinless day, and I think it's possible to have a sinless day, but if you had one, nobody would notice, least of all you. You wouldn't notice because love's humble and humble doesn't think about itself a whole bunch, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often, right? Humble, being humble doesn't mean you think, oh, I'm terrible, I'm dirt, I'm mud, I'm nobody. <laughs> That's not humility, right? Humility is serving others in love and really valuing other people and laying your life down for them because you see that they matter and you don't think they matter less than you. Pride is like, I matter more than everybody else. I don't know what my body language is all about today, but it's... But if you had a sinless day, nobody would notice. The people around you wouldn't even notice. They would feel cared for and maybe heard and like listened to, you know, you'd, because you'd be living out love. You wouldn't be thinking, oh, I'm gonna keep God so happy today. I'm gonna make sure I don't sin at all. And then you get to bed, I didn't even sin today, Lord. No, you wouldn't be thinking that. In fact, you'd still be in touch with the brokenness in the world. You'd still feel very weak. You'd still feel very dependent. You'd, be at, you'd still be crying out to the Lord for help. You wouldn't feel sinless. You'd feel weak and dependent. Did you know Jesus depended on grace every day, even though he never sinned? Did you know there's more grace active in the life of a saint who's walking in holiness than there is in the life of a disobedient saint? There's more grace active in the life of an obedient saint than a disobedient one. If you don't agree with that, change your definitions of what grace is. Jesus lived by grace, and he never sinned. He grew in favor with God and man. What's favor? It's grace. Okay, I feel like I should move forward. Sin is misery. I got saved to get free of sin. Hell later is a cool part of the deal, too, like getting free of that. But I got saved not to get free of hell later. I was actually shocked when I discovered that. I remember the day I discovered that. I showed up at church. I was just trying to, just trucking, trying to know God. How, how do I now relate to the God that I met? I'm on drugs. Everything's messed up. I hate my life. I'm always on drugs because I'm miserable when I'm not. I was not on drugs because I enjoyed drugs. I was on drugs because I didn't enjoy sobriety. I almost want to say, who's with me? But don't, I don't want to go there. But there's something built into the nature of human existence. There's a deep sadness involved in existence. It's not a byproduct of, a, of some special brokenness, systemic injustice in the world. No, humans everywhere are deeply suffering, no matter their economic class, their race, their gender, what culture they live in. To be a human is to be in touch with incredible pain, loneliness, 
sense of alienation and isolation. You know, I heard a comedian talking about how people are texting and driving. He's like, I look around the, I look around the, the road, like 90% of the people next to me at the stoplight are texting and driving. He said, that's how addicted we are to distracting ourselves from the reality of being a human in a body, thinking my thoughts and feeling my feelings without anything to distract me. Praise the Lord. That's the truth. <laughs> I can always count on you to be anti-technology right there with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so he says, what if we just stop texting for a minute? He's like, when I'm feeling real lonely, I don't even realize what I'm doing. I just text all my friends, hi, hoping somebody will love me back and give me attention. And then somebody texts back and you're like, two people text back and you pick which one is more important to you and you ignore the other one. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's dark. And he says, so this happened. He said, I was driving and I'm listening to a song in the car and I realized that I'm starting to feel the sadness. Oh no, the sadness. Oh no, the loneliness. Oh no, the sense of isolation that my life doesn't matter. I'm gonna die and everything that I've accomplished is gonna be worthless and meaningless and life doesn't have a purpose and oh my goodness, I'm gonna try to text somebody. And he goes, what if I don't? So he pulled his car over to the side of the road and wept. And he said, then this weird thing happened as he allowed the sadness to sweep over him in waves. A comfort started to come in waves to rise up to meet the sadness. Isn't that interesting? And he's like, so we're shielding ourselves from the comfort we could have by stuffing down the suffering we are so afraid of. That was me, guys. So I get saved, and Jesus takes away my coping mechanisms. And some people would be like, didn't Jesus heal your depression when you got saved? Uh, he kicked out my crutches and said, walk. And I was like, I can't. I remember calling my friend and being like, give me my drugs. And he said, I'm not doing it. I said, but I felt God when I was on drugs and now I don't feel God. This is like six months into my, my Christian life. Brand new baby Christian. So I called my guy. Give me, this is your job. My job is to give you the money. Your job is to give me the substance. Then I take the substance and then I feel meaning again. He says, I ain't doing it. Why not? And he says, because I've seen a bunch of hypocrites in my life and I've seen real Christians and you're a real one. And if I partner with you to do this, you'll regret it and I refuse to be a part of this. Praise God for that guy. Some people would be like, so Jesus, Jesus is going to heal your issues. And I'm like, sometimes he heals your issues in a moment. And sometimes, like, I came, he does. He, sometimes he heals your issues in a moment. One day I came forward because Dennis Utuzas told a story about going to a church and mentioning, hey, some people have partnered with demons and, and uh, it's bad. And the pastor came forward and Dennis put a finger on him and the guy like, a demon came out of this pastor. Well, I'm sitting there listening to Dennis's story and I'm, I was struggling with anger like a pattern of angry outbursts, just like just rage and punch the wall and scream. Terrible stuff. I, I was ashamed of it. I hated it. And yet I didn't seem to be able to get rid of it. So Dennis told that story and I was like, oh good, maybe I just have a demon. Wouldn't that be great? I'd much rather have a demon than have the problem just be me. Because a demon, it's like, no problem. Authority of Jesus, in Jesus' name, go kick the bum out in Jesus' name, right? The demons submit to Jesus. They're, they're terrified of Jesus, you know? I remember Brad Jersak. We were out to a meal with Brad Jersak, and do you remember when he said he's dealt with so many demons, they don't scare him, they don't intimidate him. He actually likes how obedient to Jesus' demons are. However, 
children are much more of a handful. <laughs> children don't always submit to Jesus, but demons do. I like just opening boxes full of messes and, and just letting you deal with them. So, so I went forward like, Dennis, pray for me. I hope I just have a demon, and that's why I have these angry outbursts. He puts his hand on my head. He prays for about three seconds, and he breaks out in a deep belly laugh. You know Dennis. <laughs> yes. I said, what is so funny? He said, the Lord says, it's just you. Sometimes the Lord just fixes the problem. No lie. Seriously. And sometimes the Lord asks us to walk something out that's hard and takes a while. The Lord needed me to face not just feeling my depression, my anxiety, my sadness, my sense of insignificance. He wanted me to go deeper than just the feeling and go to the root of the issue and allow him to repair issues in the deepest parts of my heart, the ones that I was just like, oh, come on, man. Can't we just fix the problem? You do the work, Jesus. Why do I have to do the work? And he says, well, I'll do the heavy lifting, but you have to unlock the door. And I need you to come in here with me. Uh, I just want to be happy. Whoever sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So normally God actively is restraining the consequences of our sin, but when we totally reject him for a long time, his wrath is in allowing us to experience the actual natural outcomes of our chosen way of being in the world. Paul talks about people who persist in sin so long that they sear their conscience. Have you ever burned your hand and lost feeling? Some people get um, frostbite and ruin and damage their nerves and lose feeling. And Paul says that's what sin is like. When you persist over and over and over and over in sin, you desensitize your conscience so it no longer tells you the truth. Your conscience is supposed to be, when I was a kid, they told us, that sense of right and wrong is the Holy Ghost. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I got saved and realized, no, it's not. There's a difference between your conscience and the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can lie to you. I heard about Amish people who felt so bad for putting on jeans. It's like, because their whole life they've been trained that worldliness is these external things. Yeah. So then they go to put on their first pair of jeans and they're expecting like, put, I'm going to put these bad boys on and all of a sudden without any ability to restrain it, I'm going to start singing every song off ACDC's, uh, what's that? Ride the Light. <laughs> Back in Black, that's the name of the, I started saying Metallica's Ride the Lightning. What am I doing over here? You know, I'm just going to put on these jeans and then all of a sudden this, ah, Bon Scott voice is going to come out of me. I actually was at an Amish party once. They hid in the back fields and uh, you couldn't see it from the road. I had an Amish friend who I didn't hardly even recognize at Taco Bell because he was wearing his, what do you call it now? His English clothes. And he had like a, a hip hop haircut. And, and he, I didn't even recognize. I was like, is that you, John? And, and he invited us to some party. This is before Jesus. So we show up and we're like, is this the spot? 
It's like nothing here. It's just a, a field. Then we saw a couple of cop cars leaving the field with a bus full of underage drinkers. And I was like, oh, I guess they're gone. We haven't drank a thing. In we go. And we crest of a hill, and here is buggies everywhere. Kid you not. I'm telling the truth. Buggies everywhere. A DJ playing music, playing uh, Highway to Hell. Like, could you be more hilariously, like, what are you? And not a soul danced. I was like, Amish kids don't dance. They stood around with the beer in their hand, not moving. And then somebody went over to the DJ. Uh, play teens like, it smells like teen spirit by Nirvana. I'm showing you how old I am. Like, that was still fresh, fresh beats. And I, I'm like talking to this dude. And I said, what are you guys even doing here? And he goes, we're going to look at the buffet and then we're going to go home and eat. And I was like, so you're just basically worldly people. Right? But I, if you grew up Amish, you got the impression that holiness consisted in externals. And if you didn't have the right externals, sin was going to happen. Now, you hopefully know, right, that sin is a, primarily a heart issue. And that holiness is not being weird. It's not finding out what the world's doing and doing the opposite. It's learning how to know and love Jesus better. That's holiness. Holiness is love not being weird. Because it seemed like our whole philosophy when I was a kid looking at the church was, if you can't figure out how to be holy, at least be weird. <laughs> but your conscience is not the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can be formed incorrectly so that it tells you things are wrong that are not wrong. Your conscience can be formed incorrectly so that it tells you things that are wrong are good. You can grow up in a family where beating the dog and throwing the phone is just how you tell people that you're finally serious about what you're saying. In some families, it's just, you don't really know if we mean business until somebody's being abusive and loud. Right? I have a friend, and, and we got into a conflict, and we got very heated, and this is what they said. Now we're finally communicating. My understanding of finally communicating was the opposite. I grew up in a family where if you want to really communicate, you sit down face to face and you talk very vulnerably and, and kindly with no manipulation or accusation. That's how you resolve conflicts. You sit down. Mom used to do this all the time. If I was fighting with my cousin, because cousins would come over and I'm slightly introverted and I was like, after about an hour, I'm like ready for you guys to go home. You know what I mean? Let's just, bye. Where's Tim? Oh, he's off by himself. So we'd get into some conflict when I would, had reached my like, maximum capacity of social engagement, and I was done, so I hijacked the interaction somehow, negatively. And mom, would, somebody's crying, and somebody else is smug and right and angry, and somebody else, she'd sit us down and make us face each other, and she'd say, what happened? And we'd both turn to who? Her. And she'd say, don't look at me. Tell him what happened. He took my truck. <laughs> And then when I tried to take it, you beat me on the head with it. All right, that's great. Now tell him how you feel. I wanted to play with the truck, but you wouldn't share it. So I finally took it. And we'd cry. And then she'd say, you guys can sit here all day long until you're ready to tell each other you're sorry and they're forgiven and hug each other and, and be okay. Good luck. Have fun. 
That's how I grew up. So my conscience is a little different than some people's regarding like when you're upset, you don't do the cold shoulder. So for, like for me, you want to scare the living crap out of me? I'd rather you yell at me than that you not talk to me. When you shut down and don't communicate, oh man, that's when my brain goes totally haywire. Okay, my point is this. You, you have a conscience. It's very important, but your conscience is not the same as the Holy Spirit. What you need is for your conscience to be reformed by what Jesus actually says is true. So that when it tells you this is right, it's not, it's not lying. And when it tells you this is wrong, it's not lying. Uh, I'm not going to make much progress. I guess there's one. I guess I preached one verse today. I guess I just preached one verse. <laughs> really, the pleasures of holiness and the wretchedness of sin is behind this idea of, uh, that the wrath of God is presently happening in the lives of, dis, of, the, of the disobedient. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if we would recapture a vision that just like I, didn't get, I got saved to escape the hell on earth of me in charge of my life, what if we recaptured a vision that walking with Jesus is heaven on earth? What if we recaptured a vision that to be in fellowship with God is the happy life, is the joyful life, is the pleasurable life, and that everything God says is never, ever, ever, ever coming from a, 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 a wrong motive on his part? One of the reasons we don't do what God says is because we think we know better what's going to be right for us, right? I, we trust ourselves more than we trust him. We know we have our own interests at heart. We don't, we're not always so sure he has our best interests in heart. I also would argue that God's wrath, the way it is in this passage, is meant to be redemptive. That when God's hands people over and says, fine, your will be done, it's not because he's like, I'm glad you're suffering. I want to see you suffer. It's actually, this reminds me of the story in 1 Corinthians where the kid's having an affair with his mother-in-law. Remember this? Yeah, it's in 1 Corinthians 5. This kid's having an adulterous sexual affair with his mother-in-law. And then the church is like a grace church. This is how much grace we walk in. We're accepting of even this kind of crazy behavior. High fives all around. Grace, grace, grace. And Paul's like, oh my. Face palm, you know. It's like a, what? Guys. This is what he says. He says, what you ought to have done is been grieved. And you should have gone to the boy with tears and said, you are a follower of Jesus. This is not who you are. And if he won't listen, and he won't listen, and he won't listen, then, this is what Paul says, then I want you in public to declare he's not right with God. And I want you to hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh, his sinful nature, will be destroyed and his spirit saved. And then we read in 2 Corinthians... 
Well, technically that's 3 Corinthians because we've lost 2 Corinthians. Side note. What if we found it? Would we add it to the Bible? Anyway, sorry for that. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul knows that, the, think about this, the disapproval of the group, his conscience is so seared, it's lying to him. He thinks, this makes me happy, it's okay. Who are you to judge me? This makes me happy. His conscience is lying to him. It's not doing its job. He's not listening to the Holy Spirit either. And so Paul says, now your job is to serve the function his conscience was supposed to serve. And your disapproval, not you beating him, not yelling at him, just simply saying, this is not okay, is so powerful that in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now that the guy's like gotten out of that relationship, quick, reaffirm your love for him before it kills him. Before what kills him? Your disapproval. There's a whole sermon I'd like to preach one time, one day on the issue of shame. Because unhealthy shame is the source of a lot of incredible pain. But a lack of healthy shame is the source of a whole lot of stupidity and sin. And our culture doesn't even know there is such a thing as healthy shame. But the Bible knows all about it. Healthy shame separates you from what you should hate that you have done. It creates a godly sorrow that brings about a repentance that brings life. But if you feel ashamed of things that are forgiven under the blood and long years past, there's something really wrong. And if you don't feel ashamed of despicable, destructive behavior that you're in that is harming you, grieving the Holy Spirit and dishonoring Jesus, there's something very wrong. And the community is told it's appropriate to use healthy shame to love this young man, to get him free of something that is killing him. It's interesting, isn't it? Like Jesus, we, we say, I say Jesus is the kindest person I've ever met, but I will also say that Jesus is often not very nice because I don't think that the word nice and the word kind mean the same thing. Jesus is willing for my feelings to be hurt by what he's telling me Amen. to get me free of something that's actually killing me. Is willing to hurt my feelings, to love me. And that community rescued that kid. That's a touchy one, isn't it? And you go, well, how do we practice that? Should we practice that? Is that for today? And when do you do it? And when do you not do it? And what qualifies as it? And do we have double standards? And I'm confused. And I go, that's, a, that's another long talk. But you don't parent a child that's small the same way as you parent a child that's in their teens, do you? And you don't take somebody that's just a baby Christian, doesn't know anything, and put them under a church discipline for, doing, for not doing stuff they don't have a clue about yet. Right? I will say this about God's wrath. The secret to understanding God's wrath is his love. You tell me in a world that's as broken as ours with as much injustice and wrong and pillaging and harming and sin and abuse and neglect and injustice things that are just so heart-shattering, the way we treat each other, guys, the way the humans have treated other humans. You tell me that there's a good God who genuinely cares and he's not at all upset? Then I'll, tell, then I'll show you a God that doesn't care. The secret to understanding God's wrath 
is that he cares. He cares. I will say this. He's the only one loving enough that I trust to get angry and not sin. Anything you can do with anger, because most of us think anger makes us powerful. Like early, oh, fine, we're finally communicating. You finally knew they were serious when they threw something and yelled. What's that? What's that mean? It means we believe that our anger makes us powerful. Nobody listened to me until I got angry. Now you listen to me. You ain't going to talk to me that way. I'll slap you. What's that? That's a lie. That's a lie that says anger makes me powerful. I promise you, whatever you can do with anger, you can do better without. And don't be quoting, don't be saying, oh, but Jesus turned over the tables of money changers. I trust him with anger. I don't trust you with anger. Don't be quoting the one time that Jesus... Plus, that wasn't, that wasn't, um, that wasn't thumos, that was orge. That was settled displeasure. That was not a fit of rage. Those are two different words. That was his settled displeasure at an oppressive and abusive system that took advantage of people in God's name. So whatever you can do with anger, you can do better without. But what you can do is turn things over to God, who when he judges, always does the right thing. I promise you, your anger will not bring about the character of Jesus in your life. He is so slow to anger. That's his attribute. Remember this, Moses? Tell me your name. Let me see your glory. And he goes, I'll let you see the, the, the afterglow of my glory. My face you're not going to see. Then he proclaims his, he, the glory passes by, and then he proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate. What does he say? Slow to anger. The only time God gets angry is when patience is unloving. That's the only time he even gets angry. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, is not easily angered. We never have any verse in the Bible that says God is wrath. We have many passages that teach God is love. Sometimes love gets angry when it is unloving to remain patient. But other than that, go ahead and stand.